Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, <coughs> the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host here tonight for the Gifts of Freedom, coming to you out of Kansas City, Missouri. I want you to know we're coming to you over www.blackhistoryblog.com. Also be advised that you can listen to, download, archive shows on iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. That's iTunes at www. BlackHistoryUniversity.com, and uh, you can download those programs for free. And free is good. And that's thanks to Leslie Gist, L-E-S-L-E-Y-G-I-S-T. And um, I want you to go over to her first Facebook page, send her a friend request, and you'll notice the latest posting. Uh, you'll see a picture of a gentleman by the name of Kimbo, K-I-M-B-O, who was one of the 36 Africans aboard Bahamasad slave ship. And uh, the Hamasad was a slave ship from Spain. Um, the Africans, the 36 Africans, claimed to be free. They were defended by former President John Quincy Adams, and uh, he was citing natural law and the Declaration of Independence. Get over to her Facebook page. You can learn more about that. Also, you can learn about a gentleman, a slaveholder, by the name of Captain Gordon, who was the only uh, slaveholder who was hanged for or slave trader, I'm sorry, he's not a slave owner, he's a slave trader and uh, hanged for violating the uh, constitution that forbade the importation of Africans for the purpose of slavery. Uh, that legislation was passed in 1807. Uh, as early as 1797 uh, when the United States uh, had a constitutional hearing, uh, there was a dispute as to whether the importation or slavery should be outlawed. Uh, the states of Georgia and South Carolina threatened to leave the Union. And I hear you say, what else is new? They threatened to leave the Union if such was put into the Constitution. So a compromise was reached where it would be 20 years before any before Congress could make any legislation 
pertaining to slavery. Our guest tonight is uh, David Lesser, who's a bookstore owner, antiquarian bookstore in Woodline, Connecticut. Woodbridge. Woodbridge, Connecticut. Sorry about that, David. Quite all right. And welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, David uh, specializes in Afro-Americana, slavery, the Civil War, and other history books. How'd you get into the business, David? I was originally a lawyer, and the most fun I had being a lawyer was researching um, issues involving civil rights, particularly issues that um, arose under the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments of the Constitution, which were the Reconstruction uh, Civil Rights Amendments, making sure that uh, slavery was permanently abolished and that all people, regardless of color, had the same rights and could vote, uh, and various statutes passed under those constitutional amendments. And so I liked researching and writing about those things and arguing cases that we brought under those statutes and amendments. And um, after a while, what I really, really liked was um, uh, finding books and articles and pamphlets about those same issues and um, seeing the originals and cataloging them and making them available to other people. And uh, do you have books um, relative to the Amistad situation and also the... Yeah, Amistad, uh, Amistad books are quickly grabbed up and right now I have one item a um uh, a report printed by Congress in 1841 which was right in the middle of the controversy of uh, uh whether Spain could get the Amistad mutineers back as you know um the uh, the Amistad was taken and held and um, taken to, Conne- uh, to the United States and held in Connecticut. And as you mentioned in your in your opening, John Quincy Adams uh, argued before the Supreme Court that the Amistad mutineers should be freed instead of returned to Spain, and the court agreed. And uh, the document that I have. Uh, uh, is a transmission to Congress of uh, diplomatic correspondence between the Spanish minister and our Secretary of State on the incident. This was the uh, first civil rights involving African Americans uh, to be heard before the Supreme Court. Well, you know, there were several cases that um, the court heard regarding interpretation of the fugitive slave clause that was in the constitution the constitution um, regrettably obligated states to assist uh, other states in returning uh, fugitive runaway slaves um, to those states and congress passed the 1793 statute um, implementing that constitutional provision the um, Supreme Court heard a couple of cases 
on that issue. Um, I have I have a few of those. Um, uh, trial of a guy named Prig in Prig versus Pennsylvania, and um, the court really made things quite uh, difficult for runaway slaves in those cases, uh, interpreting the um, constitutional provision. The Prigg case came up in uh, 1842. Um, This guy Prigg was a professional slave catcher from Maryland. He he grabbed a, a woman in Pennsylvania and took her back to Maryland and um, um, the court ruled that was okay. You said that was Prig versus Pennsylvania. That's P R I G G. Yes. Okay. And do you know the name of the woman that he uh, kidnapped to take back? The woman was named Margaret Moran, and she had lived happily in Pennsylvania for a while. Um, and. Uh, Prigg had just grabbed her and taken her back. Pennsylvania required, Pennsylvania law required that before he took her, he had to get an okay from a state official. That okay was in the form of something called a certificate of removal. Uh, And a Pennsylvania court refused to issue that certificate, but uh, Prigg took her, grabbed her anyway, uh, Pennsylvania indicted him for kidnapping, and uh, he was convicted in Pennsylvania. But Prigg appealed and argued that uh, he didn't have to obey any state law at all in capturing a fugitive and bringing her home. Um, and the court agreed with that. The court said that the Fugitive uh, Slave Act of 1793 and the constitutional provision were supreme and states could not add any additional conditions to that. Now, is that case uh, outlined in a book with other cases? That case is, um, that case was printed separately because it aroused so much excitement, public excitement and interest and anger in the North that um, it was published separately in Philadelphia. And you have a copy of that in your bookstore? I do indeed. Wow. Okay. Um, Why don't you give our listeners uh, your contact information, uh, your website, your bookstore? Well, my website is um, www.lesserbooks.com. My my office store is in Woodbridge, Connecticut, right off exit 59 of the Merritt Parkway. Uh, my phone number is 203-389-8111. And my email is dmlesser at lesserbooks.com. Is that DM or DM? D is in David. DM Lesser. DM Lesser at lesserbooks.com. And Lesser is spelled L E S S E R. Correct. Okay. Uh, what other books uh, do you have in your collection that 
our listeners might might not be aware of, but a very significant uh, African American. Well, they might be interested in material on um, early efforts of the Quakers and others to abolish the slave trade, the international slave trade. As you mentioned in your uh, in your earlier remarks, uh, Congress prohibited um, American participation in the international slave trade uh, in 1807. But the slave trade was still a thriving international business, and people like Anthony Benizet, who was a Quaker, wrote a number of articles, uh, pamphlets and books, about how uh, blacks were seized from Africa and taken on board slave uh, ships for this horrible middle passage to the West Indies and to the United States. Even though the United States had abolished the trade, it still continued. Um, And there's quite a bit of literature on that, the horrible conditions aboard the slave ships, the uh, kinds of activities that went on in Africa to... Uh, to take people and, uh, from Africa and bring them into slavery. Um, and then there's a whole lot of uh, material. As, as you know, I used to be a lawyer, so I have a particular interest in, in the legal aspects of slavery. And there were a number of books written, about, uh, contemporary books written about the law of slavery, um, and these laws vary somewhat from slave to uh, from state to state. Some of your listeners may be surprised to know that uh, even at the time of the Civil War, there were still slaves in some of the New England states. Connecticut had a few slaves, and Pennsylvania and New York did also, um, because those states had adopted gradual emancipation statutes. Um, People born at before a certain date remained as slaves for their whole lives. Um, then there are all sorts of uh, issues about what kinds of punishments could be inflicted on slaves for their alleged transactions. And one of the books that I have that uh, that Leslie is familiar with is... Uh, the trial of this uh, horrible guy in um, in the West Indies uh, who tortured a little slave girl um, on the island of Trinidad. Uh, he caused a rope to be tied to her wrists. The rope then passed through a pulley, so she was raised and lowered onto the sharp spike of wood. And uh, what she had been accused of doing was stealing some little things from her employer um what was that guy's name and uh, what's the name of the book let's see the name of the book is the trial of governor t picton p-i-c-t-o-n for inflicting torture on louisa calderon uh and this book was printed in london in 1806 and the book the book includes some um, uh, illustrations of the torture. 
How do you uh, come about these books, uh, David? Well, I spend my I I spend my working life finding them the same way the same way you do the things that that you do. I I look for them online. I I look for them at other dealers' stocks. I look for them from uh, from people and institutions that are getting rid of collections. Um, they're supposed to be rare, but they're all over. <laughs> you can still find them. Well, you know, I'm a half-price bookstore kind of guy, so. <laughs> um, what other chins do you have uh, available to the public? There? Well, I, I have about 10,000 books. Of course, not all of them are are Afro-American related, but a lot of them are. And a lot of them deal with the political history of the United States, which, of course, um, was so entwined with the competition between North and South, the different theories of the Union that the North and the South had. And the the linchpin of all of these differences was slavery. The South did not want the federal government interfering with the institution of slavery and increasingly uh, uh, northern politics involved uh, opposition to slavery. Um, Not that there wasn't racism in the north. There was a great deal of it. In fact, um, a number of the the new states in what we now call the Midwest prohibited blacks from coming into the state, free blacks, um, unless they posted a bond for their good behavior. It's just that slave labor increasingly represented a threat and a completely different way of life to the entrepreneurial and wage-earning people of the North. It diminished the value of free labor and... um, really glorified a way of life, the the leisurely plantation owner that was completely at odds with the um, ideal of the energetic entrepreneurial northern industrialist. Yeah, I want to go back to what you stated earlier about the graduation or the graduated uh, abolition of slavery in yeah. the state. Uh, that came up on our last show. And in the state of New York, it was July 1799. Yes, and in Pennsylvania, I believe it was uh, anybody born uh, uh, before 1780 stayed a slave. And anybody born uh, who was born after that date from a woman who was a slave would remain a slave until, you know, something like uh, he was 21 or 25 years old. Yeah, the date was July 4th, and the age for males was 28 years old. And yeah. The was 25. Mm-hmm. Unborn before July 4th, 1799, remained a slave forever. Yes. Uh, in the state of New York, I'm not familiar with uh, Pennsylvania. So even during the Civil War, there were some slaves in New York. Yes, and <laughs> that those were slaves who were born prior to July 4th. Yes. 
1799, and probably elderly slaves by that time. Yes. That had survived till the Civil War anyway. Um, I was on your website, and um, this is, uh, I came across a, a book, uh, F.C. Adams. Yes. Where it's discussing, uh, it's a book <laughs> reference to uh, the thievery of money led by Republicans of the Freedmen's Bureau. Oh, yes, yes. I, I Do I still have I think I might have sold that book. Oh, okay. But let's see. Uh, but so it's, Adams uh, is the author, and it's about the Freedmen's Bureau, isn't it? Yes, and for our listeners, the Freedmen's Bureau was established after emancipation um, for several reasons. Um, freed slaves could start bank accounts. Uh, they could solidize their marriages, their slave marriages. Um, it was set up also so that they could engage in legal employment contracts uh, with their former owners or, or anyone else. And I guess the federal government pumped a lot of money into these freedmen banks? Yes. And um, um, freed slaves put their money, whatever money they had and whatever they were earning, into these banks and Adams um, um, wrote about the history of the bank failed, and Adams writes about why, and he blames the um, supposed Republican friends of uh, of the freedmen. Um, I guess under the whatever they were calling bankruptcy law at that time. Uh, the courts appointed so-called receivers who uh, were really supposed to be trustees of the bank's funds. But Adam says that uh, they simply looted uh, they simply looted the bank. And he um, doesn't mince any words. He calls them robbers, predators of the poor and ignorant. Um, and you're absolutely right. This was uh, the Freedmen's Banks were uh, one of the things that um, the Freedmen's Bureau did. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau was, as you've said, set up under the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which um, uh, gave all blacks freed, and you know some some blacks who who were never in slavery, did not have the right to enter into contracts. But now, under the Civil Rights Act of 1866, all blacks did to make contracts, particularly employment contracts, and to testify in court, to bring suits, and to protect, to own and protect their property. Um, by the way, President Johnson uh, had vetoed that act, unfortunately, because... Um, uh, the so-called radical Republicans controlled the Congress. The bill was passed over his veto. And some of those uh, Republicans were associates of ex-President Grant, I understand. Yes. That, uh, well, Grant was uh, Grant became president in January or March 1869, and um, so yes, he was he was uh, president for most of the Reconstruction period. Were any of these uh, Republicans ever brought to trial? I don't know. As you, uh, as you probably know, a number of 
uh, Grant's cabinet people were brought put on trial for various kinds of uh, looting and plundering. Um, uh, but I don't know if it was for the Freedmen's Bank. Uh, Grant, for all of all of those corruptions that his people were involved in, was himself quite honest, I think. And he did a lot to um, um, try to secure the rights of the freedmen in the in the southern states. And did the freedmen? Uh, Freedman's Bank also track and document the atrocities committed upon... The Freedman's Bank didn't, but the Freedman's Bureau did. The uh, there are a number of reports of the Freedman's Bureau um, starting in uh, 18, late 1865 uh, talking about what's being done in the South now that um, uh, the war is over and there, and there are no more slaves. And the Freedmen's Bureau reports are very interesting in documenting the efforts of uh, Southern leaders uh, to impose legislation known as black codes that were almost as onerous uh, as slavery. Uh, if, uh, uh, if a former slave was hired, for example, he was not allowed to leave his employment for any reason, or he would could be fined or imprisoned. Now, that kind of uh, that kind of conduct to treat the freed slaves as if they were still almost slaves um, was stopped, I think, uh, to a large extent by the dismantling of President Andrew Johnson's power. Uh, even though the impeachment effort against him failed, Congress got the power to impose its own reconstruction because they had a veto-proof majority in both the Senate and the House, and they were able to impose a military rule on the South since the South was not complying with with the purpose of freeing the slaves. And then when Grant became president, he continued that. Yeah, the atrocities, as I mentioned, there was a lot of uh, looting, a lot of lynching. There were, and, and, and fixing of elections. Uh, there's a very, very good book on this that I would recommend uh, by a guy named Eric Foner, F as in Frank, O-N-E-R, called Reconstruction, and he examines uh, Reconstruction in all the southern uh, states, the former Confederacy, uh, and it's a very, um, it's a pretty depressing tale. I'm also reminded, uh, as we're talking about this, and uh, some of our listeners might be aware of the movie starting a uh, Sidney Poitier and uh, Harry Belafonte called The Buck and the Preacher. Uh, that uh, blacks were escaping to the West and vigilante uh, or posses or whatever were sent out to turn them back, to bring them back to the South, um, which was another one of those atrocities. I want to remind our listeners that they're listening to The Gist of Freedom 
My guest is David Lesser, bookstore owner from Woodbridge, Connecticut. <laughs> and Five minutes from my house in New Haven. Oh, boy. <laughs> we all like to live that close to work. Yeah. If you join the conversation or you have a comment or question, you can do that at 347-324-5552. Can you tell us a story about uh, the fraudulent sale of an unsound Negro slave? (laughs) I was able to to buy a number of um, legal manuscript legal documents from the late 17th and early 18th century, I mean late 18th and early 19th century, where um, the sale and transfer of slaves was treated very much like uh, uh, the sale and transfer of any any other commodity. Um, and if you, if you went out today and, and you bought a television set, and you brought it home, and the television set didn't work, uh, you would say that um, uh, that your warranty had been breached, that this uh, set was supposed to be uh, uh, fit for its purpose, and uh, and you'd get to return it and get your money back. Well, uh, in one of the documents I have, a person bought a slave, who turned out to be unsound, he said, and he sued uh, his seller um, because the slave was not working as he was supposed to. He he had fallen ill and he got sick and he couldn't work, um, and it was kind of a breach of warranty case. Um, David, before you continue, I'll let you finish. I want our callers to know that we see you and just hang in there. And, oh, we uh, have callers? We have callers, but don't worry. Go ahead with the. Uh, oh, uh, I'm pretty much done. I, I uh, just thought it was interesting for uh, to to have documents showing uh, the way people bought and sold and uh, in in normal everyday commerce other human beings. Do you have any documents or books that outline the insurance that slaveholders were? had on their slaves? I don't, but they do crop up from time to time. Hello? Hello? Is that... Hello? Hello? (laughs) Is there a caller on the line? Yes. Okay. Do you have a question or comment? Yeah. uh, After the... Slave trades. Uh, I think in American society that African Americans were still looked down upon as still the lesser, which affected the development of African Americans that were brought to this land unwillingly. Okay. Is that you have a radio so, or something, caller? Hold on. Me now, sir. We're getting some feedback. Did you have a a radio or something on? Yeah, I had a 
I had earphones on. I was talking through a microphone. They're gone um, now. I, I don't hear the background now. Okay. What I was saying was um, that I, I feel after I seem to be touched bases on some of the after effects of the the slave um, trade when they abolished it, that I think that it's still that people looked upon African Americans in a certain way to um, to stunt the growth of African Americans. To the day, there's still a complex, and I feel like racial tension is still very well alive. Okay. So um, what do you think about that, David? The caller seems to be saying that the badge of slavery um, is still with African Americans to this day. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I... I think he's I think he's probably probably right to a good extent. On the other hand, um you have to remember that less than 60 years ago um yeah, less than 60 years ago legal segregation existed. And, and it still did in it still did in 74. And and it did very well in the eighties. See, I'm I'm from Ohio, and I'm not Ohio, I'm not arguing with you that prejudice doesn't exist today. I'm talking about segregation. I mean, it, legal segregation like no longer it was, exists. It was, it was a private pool, so you, yeah. you know, and it, it was a neighborhood pool where I lived in a white community, and people would um, go to this pool. But they still wouldn't let blacks join. Yeah. So, and I, and that's still a form of segregating. I certainly agree with you. Yes, uh, color. We're very aware of the segregation and the legacy and the history of segregation. Uh, keep in mind, though, that the show that we're presenting here is about helping African Americans look at themselves differently by looking at the freedom fighters from our past um, well, early on. Yeah. Well, the main object is not to look at it in a negative thing, but, you know, also to learn how to, you know, build build within the communities. And, you know, it's, it's for everybody. This world is for everybody. It's not for just one race, but, you know, we're, we're on planet Earth and we all have to find out, you know, ways of you know, survival for all of us because now this is 2013 and I don't see nobody doing better than the next, you know, and um, we all have to combine to, to make the world better, you know. Amen. We just have to do that. That's that's all it is. It's, people can't look look down on people because of their race or, or, um, or anything like that because I, I know a lot of good people in the world and I wouldn't trade them in from all different ethnic backgrounds and I wouldn't trade them in for nothing and um and I and I I've had a lot of racist issues that happened to me in my life but I don't hinder that for me from growing and developing into you know a nation. Very good. Thank you, caller. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Okay. All right. So, David, um, in your collection, I, I'm hearing you say that these are very rare books. 
you have to go a lot through a lot to obtain these books. Um, but uh, getting back to that slave insurance, uh, you said you didn't have any books on that? I, I don't think I do, no. Okay. Have you had some in your possession at one time that you could talk to us about? Or maybe insurance companies that may still be in business to this day. Yeah, I've, I've read about that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you sounds like you may know more about that than I do. Well, I've, I've read up on it a bit. Uh-huh. Uh, I can't give any particular uh, details right now, but I'm sure there's some insurance companies out there um, that are doing business right to this day. Um, they're probably practicing a red line, redlining, uh, <laughs> and property and whatnot, uh, real estate. Etc. At one time, uh, are you are you saying they're doing that now? Uh, to some extent, uh, if I, I they're doing that now, if they're doing that now, it's illegal. Yeah. At least we can say that it did not used to be illegal. It is illegal. They may be doing that now to some extent, but if they are, they're violating the law. Exactly. Um, what about some of the rescue missions uh, relative to the fugitive slave law around the 1850s? Um, any books in that on that? What topic? do you mean by the rescue missions? The people in the um, in well, the, the north who were uh, who were protecting who were slaves, protect- runaways? Do you mean? Yeah, protecting the runaways. Sometimes went into a court, grabbed yes. the um, defendant out of the court. Rescued him, uh, you know, took him on uh, yeah. somewhere up in yeah. Connecticut, back yeah. of the country. Yes. The famous uh, rescue attempt where some involved shooting and people getting shot and killed. and The um, uh, trial of a, uh, the case of a guy named Kastner Hanway. Um, a Maryland, once again, we're in Maryland, the Maryland slave owner tried to um, seize who he regard, who he considered his slaves uh, who had run away near Christiana, Pennsylvania. It's the one. Hmm? Uh, the, uh, several people were killed. The governor of Maryland um, decided they, that he wanted to make an example of... Uh, uh, people who were defying the Fugitive Slave Act, he um, caused this fellow Kastner Hanway and several others to be indicted for treason. Um, I have had several times, but sold several times, the um, the pamphlet uh, uh, written by a lawyer for Hanway. He was acquitted, by the way. And it didn't take very long. Um, but there were people who um, uh, who tried to help uh, runaway slaves. Uh, there's a, several books on the Underground Railroad um, that have been written, one by a guy named Still and another by a guy named Smedley. Um, and um, That was William Still. William Still, I think that's right. Yes, yes. And uh, did you say Stinley? Is that S T 
Smedley, S-M-E-D-L-E-Y. Oh, Smedley, uh, okay. Smedley, a guy who wrote a history about the Underground Railroad in uh, in Pennsylvania. What was his first name? Uh, his initials are R.C., and he was a he was a medical doctor. Um, what's your take as a lawyer on the 1850s Slave Fugitive Act? Well, there is a lot of stuff written about that. Uh, Northerners, uh, plenty of Northerners were outraged because it it dispensed with a lot of the procedural protections that we take for granted today and that were taken for granted as part of our fundamental rights. Then, if a person was charged with being a fugitive slave, he was denied a trial by jury. And he wasn't even tried in a normal court of law. He was tried by a commissioner who would get, I forget exactly what the money was, but say five bucks if the uh, slave was found to be, a fu- if, the, if the black defendant was found to be a fugitive slave and only two bucks if he was acquitted. So there was a lot of bias built into the system. And this was um, a great cause of friction uh, between North and South. And there were several famous uh, cases where mobs prevented the um, uh, the arrest of, of people under that fugitive slave law of 1850. A guy named Anthony Burns was probably the most famous case. Um, uh, famous uh, Boston Boston Brahmin types uh, interfered with the arrest, and um, uh, the People like Daniel Webster were just uh, excoriated in the North for their acquiescence in the Fugitive Slave Act. On the other hand, there were a lot of people who were scared that um, the Union was going to break up because of this friction, and if they had to, if they had to swallow the Fugitive Slave Act, well, they would. And remember. There were over 620,000 people killed in the Civil War. So they had something to to be afraid of. There was a lot to be afraid of about the Union breaking up. Well, under this uh, law, were there still a number of children being kidnapped under the new law, under the 1850? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know. Kidnapped by whom? You, you know, there are cases of... Uh, of free Negroes, as they were called, in border states like Maryland and Delaware and Kentucky being kidnapped south and brought into slavery. Yeah, these would be bounty hunters who were stealing free blacks, sending them to, you know, to the south to be enslaved. Right. What brought about the creation of the Vigilance Committee uh, because of the... uh, Dealing of these children. Yes. Going back to this monetary, where the judge would get five dollars if whatever it was, he he did he did better for himself if he found them to be a fugitive slave. Yes. Uh, so the incentive was money. How do you see that playing against uh, 
Michelle Alexander's book, The Mass Incarcer The New Jim Crow Mass Incarceration and the money the the role that money plays in the incarceration of blacks uh and other You mean after people. the war? Well no, this is uh, right now in the nineteen eighties or so. Um Are you familiar with her book? I'm I'm not familiar with the book. Why don't you why don't you tell me a little about it? Michelle Alexander uh, it's called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, where she talks about uh, the legal system uh, criminalizing uh, drugs, for example, uh, crack cocaine. Is a different oh, kind that, of- the greater sentences for, for the, okay. yeah, I don't really have, I, I don't know, I don't have an opinion on that. And it's caused the privatization of prisons. yeah. I I don't know I don't know what I think about that. Mm-hmm. Well, getting back to the books on, uh, but the there is a point to be made. There's an interesting um, uh, point that I've just become aware of that your listeners might uh, want to know about. You know, the Thirteenth Amendment prohibits slavery or involuntary servitude, except for commission of a crime for which the individual has been duly convicted. So I had never really thought about this until a few months ago, but several people have written about how that last clause is um, uh, is a breach about a mile wide that the, that the South could uh, could go through. All they had to do was convict uh, black people for vague crimes like vagrancy and put them to work on a prison gang. Exactly. Um, so, I don't know. I There, there are several books written about that. Um, I haven't studied them, but it's, it's something worth giving some thought to. Okay. Yeah, the, uh, the privatization of the prison system. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I really don't know. Okay. Do you? Well, I, you know, um, yes, I do. Uh, the state of Texas, for example, the fastest growing industry in that state is private uh, uh, institutions and the private uh, privatization of prisons. Uh, I think our producer wants to come on. Are you there, Leslie? No, she's not coming on. Okay. So do you have any um, last comments for our listeners? Or do you have any oh, events? sorry, Preston. Preston, oh, that takes me time to come on. So I had to know you... <laughs> I just can't jump on. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, David. Thanks for coming on, and we're gonna. This is our last uh, question. Uh, I know. Nice we to talk to with you, you Lily. Yes, I know we promised to let you go at eight thirty. But the point we are trying to make is that there's a continuation from the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which introduced uh, money into the arrest in the. Um, of the fugitives, the African Americans, if they were born free or if they were uh, escaping successful freedom seekers. 
And I think that was the beginning of the money being um, uh, um, introduced to this uh, this slave system, and it continues on through, as you said, the 13th Amendment, which says that you can be re-enslaved if you broke a crime, which is... Um, uh, Leslie, money drove book. money drove the whole system right from the beginning. These plantation owners were major capitalists. They weren't they weren't just sitting on their behinds, you know, reading their classical books. It was money for right. all from the beginning. Right, and what we what they uh, they're a lot more shrewder than they were. Uh, they're a lot more shrewder today than they were back, and it was very obvious. But now we see that you know. Uh, they put the money in the, in 1850. They made a law. They pat, they emancipated us, but then they put a little trick clause in there to say you could be re-enslaved. And they did this leasing, convict leasing thing to make sure that the black laws were put in place and people were re-enslaved through that system. And now today it's a continuation where now they're having um, private prisons, private prisons um, built up for profit. And so I just think it was a continuation. I thought, as a lawyer, you might be able to um, oh, yeah, piece that I, together better than I, we I, could. I don't see the direct line there that you do, no. No. I think, I think that the privatization of prisons is probably more like the, pri- the uh, effort to privatize a number of other public, formerly public services that um, – uh, cost a lot of money and maybe would cost less if they were run privately. But along with that, okay. the change in the laws that uh, made, you know, social crimes are, they were designated by race. Again, uh, the prime example is crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. Help that along. Well, that may be. There's a lot of discussion about that, and I've never really become terribly familiar with with the issue. He has no reason to, right, David? Well, thank God, no, no, I don't <laughs> <use> either. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna let you go. We understand where you're coming from. Um, I appreciate the books that you have. You have a wonderful collection. Thank I you. Recommend people to go to his website, which is lesserbooks.com. Thank um, you. you. Even if you can't afford the books like I can't, um, you can learn a great deal just by reading about the descriptions. And, and you can get my uh, catalogs. Mm-hmm. Leslie, right, they can always get my catalogs. Yes, it's true. Okay, any last words, Mr. Lesson? Uh, no, just thanks for having me on your show. I really enjoyed it, and uh, thanks to your host also. It was a lot of fun, and look forward to seeing you at the next book fair. All righty. Have a good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Well, that's our show, folks.